Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks you to not just skim the surface, but look at what lies beneath. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. If you'd like to support this podcast directly, we've updated our Patreon page to switch to monthly contributions. You can back us for as little as a dollar a month to help this podcast cover its expenses and time and underwrite me traveling to record more on-site interviews and to create live events. Go to patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You can find us all at boingboing.net, where you can also listen to Boars, Gore, and Swords about HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as movies, TV, science fiction, fantasy, and lots of other things. You can find the show archives at newdisrupt.org. Take a picture and put it under glass, but not quite the way you think. The folks at Fracture have built a business that connects several different technologies into one new way to print large-format photos on glass. Today I talked to Abi Lokesh, one of Fracture's founders, about the journey from a small village in Africa to a whiz-bang printing and distribution company. Welcome to the podcast, Abi. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, and I have to give a disclosure up front because you guys sponsored the podcast several months ago. And uh, when I was talking to uh, one of your folks about the technology back then, I thought, oh, I want you on the show. But if you're a <laughs> podcast sponsor, you can't be on. So we've waited a sufficient amount of time. Now I feel like the, the commerce aspect has passed and I can have you on. And and uh, uh, and also, I should I, the other disclosure, I got a two prints as part of the sponsorship so I could see the work, which I love. And I've given to my mother-in-law, the prints of my children and wife. And uh, so I've seen the technology um, firsthand and gone through your ordering and delivery process. So thank you for that as well. Absolutely not a problem. And it sounds like it passed the uh, ultimate litmus test if you uh, present them to your mother-in-law. Ex- yeah, that's right. They're up on the wall. They're kind of big. I got the bigger size ones. And my okay, wife's like, are these too big? I'm like, she's a grandparent. Nothing is too big. <laughs> it could fill up the wall. But, you know, you have this origin story. I'm always interested in where people uh, come from. And you have this great one, of course, and it's on your site because it's so good, is that you and Alex, the, the co-founder of the company, you guys were uh, uh, Alex Theodore. You were in Swaziland. Correct. Small country on the southeast edge of Africa uh, involved in nonprofit work. What brought you to Swaziland? Yeah, and that's actually a fascinating story, and it's one that's even at times difficult for me to still wrap my head around. But we were actually involved in a nonprofit that we had co-founded while we were in school together um, with another colleague of ours. And the purpose of that nonprofit was to provide agricultural and developmental aid two folks in Swaziland um, in Southern Africa. And how we connected the dots between you know, Swaziland, art, and eventually Fracture was that when we originally came up with the concept for the nonprofit, we didn't want it to be the traditional charity case where we simply had to go around holding our hands out and begging for donations. Um, eventually, you can only tug on someone's heartstrings so many times before they just get tired of it. And we were being taught about social entrepreneurship and innovative types of philanthropy in a social entrepreneurship course we were taking, and we were encouraged to be innovative in our business model. So we thought to ourselves, okay, what if we try and make this a more entrepreneurial sort of nonprofit? And we were all interested in digital art, digital imagery, and we thought to ourselves, how about we try and collect art from all around the world? Um, We would work with socially conscious artists. We would rebrand that art under our nonprofit's name, with the artist's permission, of course, and then we would sell it. And instead of, in, then instead of just relying on charity, we would then have this revenue stream that could help fund our nonprofit endeavors. And that was the original genesis of how we started working with art in the first place. Oh, that's great. I'm, I feel like I'm seeing more examples of that where it's uh, you're, you're provide a chain from the actual person who is in some developing country where they have a way to make money or you're taking resources that are from the developing developed world and using that as a way to funnel money back in. But there's sort of a commerce – I mean I don't know if there's a term for that, right? Because it's entrepreneurship crossed with, uh, crossed with nonprofit developmental work. But it's a non um, – what do you call it? I guess a non-zero-sum game because the people participating aren't just donors. They, they get something of value or they may not even – care about the project. You reached people who are just buying a thing, too, and it still goes to support the work. Exactly. It was, it was, and it still is a very fascinating field, and we were lucky to be involved in it kind of in its inception point when it was still 
um, very new and the concepts were still um, taking place and taking hold. But looking back on it now, that was around six to seven years ago. And um, so to fast forwarding a little bit, we were continuing to work with a nonprofit and a little nonprofit art gallery that we had on the side. And we just kept making a couple observations here and there about how people were using the art that we bought. Were they framing it? Were they actually um, displaying it? And in the summer of 2008, we were actually awarded a $10,000 grant to go to Swaziland and implement some of the proposed research and agricultural work we had um, written in our, in our grant proposal. And that's what really gave us the opportunity to spend a couple months in Swaziland. And, and one thing I'll say is that you know, both Alex and I were soon-to-be seniors at the University of Florida – and there's no better way to take a step back from everyday life than to throw yourself into the middle of the African countryside and just you know sit there for a couple months. And <laughs> we had a unique once-in-a-lifetime opportunity truly to just really take a step back and think to ourselves, you know, what are we doing? Um, look at the options we had um, you know, on our hands as individuals um, career-wise. And we just kept circling around this concept of what we were doing with the art and digital imagery and where digital imagery was headed, the digital imaging revolution, we just kept coming back to that. And that's where we started to realize that we both felt like there was something pulling us towards doing something with digital imagery in the 21st century. Oh, and it's tricky then too, because there was so much, the, the space you're looking at was well-developed, right? I mean, there's, there are different kinds of large format printing you could do. There was, um, we were talking before the podcast about, uh, you know, even 20 years ago, there were printers that had, that were new then and now are kind of commonplace that let you print on all these different, uh, substrates. Like you could print on, uh, unprimed canvas or mm-hmm. on different papers or on transparents. I mean, all this stuff that was out there in the field. So you're, you're going into a, an area in which you knew the art side and you knew what you wanted, but, uh, how did you, try to figure out where there was a space in that really well-developed market where you would be able to do something different. Absolutely. And I think you're touching upon what was really going to be the, the crux of our dilemma and, and what we really needed to figure out, which was how do we differentiate ourselves? How do we separate ourselves from this very established printing market? Like you said, the canvas, the G-Clay, the, uh, the roll printers, they were all out there. And you know, this is honestly where Alex, my co-founder, was able was able to really employ his genius. Um, to me, Alex is the MacGyver of our time. He's the he's the guy that you can give a a matchstick and some duct tape to, and he will create a bazooka. He is that guy, and um, that was actually where we spent a majority of our time focusing on when conversing about what we wanted Fracture to be. Um, we just conversed for thousands of hours uh, while waiting for buses, while just sitting in grassy savannas in, in, in Africa, literally just saying, well, you know, what's oh out gosh. there? What can we do is different. And we knew we wanted to do something tangible. We knew we didn't want just, we didn't just want to, you know, outsource a printing solution to a third party and then create the, the e-commerce system around it. We wanted to actually build it from hand. There was something very uh, very tangible, very visceral about what we wanted to do. So, can I break in with the business model issue there too? Yeah, is, absolutely. You, is obviously you were thinking about the markup and the control, but that's mm-hmm. something I keep hearing from people uh, again and again is that um, it's not that outsourcing is bad. And a lot of people do it, and you do it at different scales. There's things you have to if you grow too big, or sure. there's kinds of expertise, or there's a million dollar piece of equipment you can't own from day one. But in uh, in terms of being able to do something different. By controlling the whole process, it seems, or, or doing it all in-house, it seems that you get to capture uh, more of the value from it. You keep more of the revenue, but also you can keep the pricing lower because your fixed price is whatever you choose to set it at, based on you know the investment you got or the, what you're charging. Right. So it seems like right. you did you set up this approach partly to have that flexibility. Unquestionably, um, that vertical integration was something that we really wanted and really cherished from the very get-go, and. Also, one of the things that we really uh, liked was you know, we're both huge Apple fanboys, and um, along with everybody in the company, you're not hired if you if you're not. Um, but it was one of those things where we really enjoyed the the experience, and we knew that we couldn't have that control over the experience if we didn't have ultimate control over the oh. the prototyping, the engineering, the distribution, all of that. And it wasn't really from an ego standpoint, but it's just that we knew what we wanted to create and how that could separate ourselves from the pack and we kind of came to the conclusion that it had to be made by us from the ground up. 
Oh, that makes so much sense, though, because it's that, I mean, the control part I get, because then you don't have to be shipping stuff back that doesn't meet your quality standards and when the exactly. overhead that, or you don't have to have somebody in a plant somewhere who's watching manufacturing happening, which is if you could even afford it as a startup is a huge thing. Uh, and you bear more of the risk yourself, but it seems like you, you control so much more of those basic costs that you have to still sink in the capital, but then you get to choose exactly what you do with it. Certainly. That's, that's really the perspective we took at it. Now, I think we're paraphrasing it to make it sound a lot neater and tidy <laughs> yeah, sure than what it felt like over the past couple of years. But yes, that's the ultimate gist of it. Yeah, so. control is great. I mean, this is a, I'll tell you, this is the, the perspective I'm bringing as a small business owner with the magazine. I'm gaining more and more insight as time goes on because I do things like we did a Kickstarter and suddenly getting a huge influx of cash, but then also having a manufacturing burden associated with it and how to manage that. I'm like, oh, you know, I haven't had that under my fingers in the same level before the scale. And it's um, – right. But it's so it's both like I can relate to how uh, how wonderful it is, and then how totally you know freak out you can get. And and in your business, as you grow, I assume that's always a problem too. Is that because you're managing, you can't take the overflow and just get more outsourcers. You have to scale up every time there's a scaling issue. If there's another hundred thousand dollar device you need, you have to buy, you have to finance it and buy it. Absolutely, and you know this is something that. You know, we're learning the hard way as we grow in these spurts that, you know, I always go kicking and screaming to Alex, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, why can't we just you know, outsource this? And he has to patiently yet again for the thousandth time explain to me how it's just not that simple. And this is what we signed up for. And, you know, the ability to, in good times and bad times, have control over our product and the way it's scaled and manufactured. That's good. And it's also, you can work any number of hours, right? So you might want to, your goal might be 30 hours a week or 50 or 70, but on a week you have to work 110, you probably work 110. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is horrible. But it's also it's in your control and you have that ability to scale it up. You can't ask an outsourcer to have, you know, one person work a three shift or you know, three weeks in one week, but you can do that to yourself. Exactly. Um, Why would I? Yeah, I was curious. So the technology, there's like two different kinds of journeys here. One journey is the conceptual one, and you have mm-hmm. the um, incredible. That's such a gift to have time and, and in a weird place too because you were involved in something that was clearly engaging and whatever, but you had downtime in there in which you got to have this these incredible ongoing conversations. So you had this great upfront investment of time that cost you nothing because you mm-hmm. could talk. And most people, you know, that's a hard place to get to. The other is – so the, the concept you came up with, there had to be a technological journey. So you had this – did you guys think of um, – we haven't even described your product yet. So let's let's describe what you make now and then we'll back up and say how did you get there. So um, so you are a – you're a photo printing service. But what mm-hmm. does someone get when they get a photo from you? What is the result? Sure. So when someone gets a fracture from us in the box, which is completely branded and actually has opening instructions and mounting instructions on the box itself, when they open the box and the packaging, they receive a – um, a photo print that is actually a picture printed on onto glass, so directly onto glass. Um, no, there are no separate pieces floating around. It's a piece of it's a piece of glass that's had an image printed directly onto it and then mounted on the back with a piece of foam core. Now, this foam core has the um, mounting keyhole laser etched into the back. It's got our brand fracture um, also laser etched into the back. And really, what we're presenting someone is an all-in-one solution to printing and framing. So it comes with the mounting hardware, it comes with the instructions, it comes with everything you need to get that image off of your camera and on the wall in one fell swoop. That's good. You got a good elevator pitch. That's good. I've worked on it for a little bit. The- <laughs> That's a good. I've tried to explain this to people. It takes me much longer. The thing so here's the one thing that when I explain this to people they go, "But wait, why would you print on the front of glass? Wouldn't it get mm-hmm. dirty?" I'm like, "No, no. You guys print on the on the in reverse essentially on the back side of glass." Correct. So yes. the, there's a layer of glass and the ink is – I'm looking through the glass at the ink and behind the ink is the uh, foam core mounting board behind – is behind that. That is correct. You can basically consider the image sandwiched between right. the, the glass on one side and the foam core on the back side. Which protects it as well. And so, Absolutely. So the thing uh, – so I'm – you know, I, I techno geek out about this and I also like business geek out about it because you had to combine so many different pieces of technology uh, and just Certainly. like – just the obvious ones and I want you to tell me all of them because not your trade secrets but you're <laughs> more like there's obviously a bunch of different technology involved mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to create this thing. There's a bunch of back and stuff going on. And then from a business standpoint that you could pull all the capital, website, promotional, and fulfillment together mm. to make that happen. So there's 
two different layers. I want to talk about the technology first because um, we tend to talk on the show both about methods and um, like uh, you know, how you do something and how you get there. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, you've got at least three things that I know of going on here that you're, you know, this is, I always go back to the fax machine. The fax machine was a terrible thermal printer, a terrible scanner, and a crummy modem and stuck together it changed the world so absolutely yeah yeah, and these this is all high-end stuff you're working with here but you've taken at least three things i'm aware of so tell me for starters we'll go back to a few years and you have this idea you're conceiving of it how did you find a device that would print on glass because that seems like a very um special item right and you know this is a a truly unique story so what happened was let's rewind back to once we decided upon we want to do something with printing um images uh in a in a mass consumable yet high quality way so we come back from swaziland and i immediately give alex all of my savings from having worked at a biotech startup you know up until that point in college (laughs) and that amounted to a massive seven hundred dollars oh my gosh incredible so at that point i gave alex my savings um you know exactly that was the most near and dear thing I could give to him. And I said, you know, go forth and, you know, prototype, experiment. And that's exactly what he did. And that's, that is his calling card. And he, you know, as a prototypist was really experienced with that sort of thing. So what he did is he went to Office Max, bought a inkjet printer. And at that point in time, it was just getting popular to be able to print your own dual CD cases and, you know, various, various substrates of, you know, variable thicknesses, you know, give or take a couple inches on your inkjet printer. And he was able to jerry-rig that printer, of course, open it up and jerry-rig it to, to be able to accept a piece of glass. And <laughs> oh you know, he basically force-fed it a piece of glass <laughs> and deposited the ink onto it that way. And I still remember him coming over to my house with the initial prototypes. And I was just – we were both taken aback by the quality and mm-hmm. that the, the reproduction was able to produce. And that's really where it all started. That's where we you know, kind of had the opportunity to look at each other and say – we have something on our hands here. Um, and from there, it was genuinely about a year and a half to two years of hardcore prototyping and process experimentation where we had to get the capital and we were fortunate enough to do so and to experiment with multiple printing processes um, to see which one produced the combination of quality and speed and efficacy that we really wanted to use because we wanted this to be a a large-scale endeavor. Oh, wait. So you have, you have a bunch of different issues, right? You have uh, consistency issues. You have mm-hmm. throughput issues. Yeah. You have light. I mean, I'm an ink geek, too, or I used to be. So, like, light fastness issues. You have to get Certainly. ink that you know that when you put it under xenon lights for a week for your testing or however you do that in your mm-hmm. prototyping phase, that it's not going to fade or flake or fall off. Like, so you've got all of these different factors you're trying to, you were trying to go through with the prototype to, to determine. Yes. And, you know, th- those are – now, again – I, I make it sound like we knew exactly what we were doing at that point in time, but you know, this is really where Alex's, you know, genius kicked in, and he he recognized the need to be able to be on top of all of those things you mentioned, like you said, um, the fastidiousness of the ink, the the archival quality of it. You know, is it going to be around? You know, is the ink going to fade in a couple of years? Um, I worked in a conservation lab when I was in college, and they uh, used uh, book aging. Well, here, here's a great secret from my past. I converted Yale University from letterpress diplomas to laser-printed diplomas. I'm not sure I'm proud of it, but it was <laughs> I was asked to do it when I was uh, working in the printing department there after graduation. And we took that to – I mean there's some standard procedures in conservation uh, mm-hmm. in departments where they have aging and so forth. You take paper, you take ink, you do all these samples, and they simulate you know, 100 years, 300 years – and you come back and you say, okay, this isn't going to work or this is. This is going to flake off in you know, the equivalent of five years right. or, you know, and then we'll have to replace all these diplomas. So, um, so right, there's procedures you can go through to, to at least get some sense of what's going to happen there. Yes, yeah. And, you know, we did our own sorts of testing, humidity testing, um, strength testing. And, you know, um, one of the – honestly, one of the most difficult aspects of this entire process, and it remains to be the case, is shipping. How do you ship a yeah. process uh, – a substrate that's as delicate as glass – all around the world. I want to talk about that later, but I did get. I'll tell you. You know, I was impressed with the packaging as a as a in terms of how it came out. So we'll talk about that too. But that That's seems right. to be so. You're so you're dealing. There's like tensile strength and bending and consistency right. and ink flaking and aging. So, but over a year and a half, you said this prototyping took about a year and a half. <laughs> you were able to to uh, home in on a on a decision. Did you wind up making hardware yourself to do this? Did you modify existing equipment? 
Yeah, and so the answer is the latter. So hmm. what we ended up realizing we had to do was take equipment that did exist, but kind of modify it for our niche and our our usage. Um, what we really had to tweak and what we really had to emphasize was the quality reproduction, because the majority of the large format printers were meant to print on substrates that were usually seen at billboard distance or something like that, where oh. you know it's the where you really wanted to get into the nitty gritty was being able to create a process that looked good four to six inches away instead of, you know, mass, you know, <laughs> 20, 30, 40 yards away. We wanted something that looked great up close and personal. And that's really um, where we had to spend the most time kind of tweaking processes that was already there. And so you were able to find commercial equipment in the end? C- correct. And, you know, this is really where um, the most research had to be done. And the funny thing is the the printing world is rapidly evolving. Um, The large format printing, uh, offset printing, digital printing, those technology sectors are changing and advancing so quickly that, you know, we always needed to keep our finger on the pulse of latest technology, see what was out there, because we knew that we needed to make a capital investment. And we didn't want to make a capital investment and two weeks later find out that the next greatest and best thing had come out (laughs) and regret that. So we had to be okay with our decision whenever we made it. Yeah, we keep coming back to that in this podcast. Strangely enough, is uh, is I thought starting out we would talk much more, um, you know, a year plus ago about um, electronic things and the internet and so forth. But it turns out that I, as you know, um, and we've have talked about in previous episodes that. Um, digital technology isn't all about electronic stuff. I mean, which is obvious when you think about it, but the extent to which it's reached into all of these physical processes, uh, not just as controlling like CNC router controls or, or what have you, but, um, you know, as you mentioned offset printing in uh, this book that we're doing for the magazine, we would never have been able to do such a small quantity before a few years right, ago. It wouldn't have right. been affordable. Now we can. And so that's fascinating. So you're seeing this in all the areas you researched that the, that, uh, that digital processes, whatever level they occur, are producing improvements, the cost and efficiency and speed improvements. Yeah, definitely. And you know, this is something that my co-founder Alex is knee deep in. Um, you know, trying to continuously R and D the product, and in doing so, really understanding the industry and how it is improving. But long story short, regarding our process, we ended up using a, a UV ultraviolet printing process mm. that um, was again, met our needs um, as far as we could glean them for quality meeting um, quantity. And that was that was the most important. And UV, in this case, the ultraviolet light helps, uh, it like bakes and seals the ink, right? It's a, uh, it's a, not a heat thing as much as a, um, it's like a, a, not phase change. I've forgotten what the term is, but it's, it produces a physical change that makes it a permanent, uh, essentially permanent process. Yeah. And, and that, it, it, it makes it an, a permanent process in a very, immediate, spontaneous way. And that was the most important thing, one of the most important things for us because a majority of printing processes are, um, are dye-based. And, you know, the, the dye has to seep into the, the substrate and kind of dry over time. With, like, like you had mentioned, with the UV printing process, it was um, instantaneous. So as soon as the UV light hit the epoxy, um, it then basically caused that physical change to cure the epoxy and um, harden it and fasten it and basically make it permanent. That's so fascinating. And the, so the device that you've chosen, you've based this around, um, other people are not typically using it for glass, right? You guys have adapted it for your particular process, but it's used for other sorts of substrates uh, most of the time. Correct. And, you know, that in a, in a nutshell, that's a, a, that represents our secret sauce as a yeah, company, yeah. Uh, which is you know, us being able to maneuver and kind of fit pieces of the puzzle together that you wouldn't think fit together. <laughs> that's interesting. So the company that makes, I noticed you're not mentioning the printer maker and I won't push, but the, uh, the company makes the hardware. So mm-hmm. have they come to you and said, look, you're doing this cool thing. Can we turn this into a product? Can we, I mean, has this become another line or is it something you want to preserve or, or they're not even aware of or care about it? Um, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Uh, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, we, um, we're not easy on them. We ask a lot of questions that yeah. can't be answered. We, um, we poke and prod and, um, really push the limits on these warranties they give us, and it's one of those things where we, you know, we we have to be that way. There's there's no other way we can be if we're trying to really push the limits of what you know digital printing and you know various substrate printing can do. And you know, I really give Alex a lot of credit for that. Let's pause for a moment so I can talk about Media Temple, who is this week's sponsor. At the end of this spot, I'll have a coupon code for you for a discount. For years, Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. That's because a single grid account can host anything from your portfolio site to a hundred different client projects. And the grid is ready for 
anything. Hundreds of servers work together in the cloud to keep your sites online. Even if you suddenly hit the front page of Reddit, which is something I aspire to, and when it happens, you want to be ready for Reddit. It's all managed through their own simple custom control panel. It's backed by Media Temple's famous 24 by 7 live support. Virtual private server solutions are also available with their DV developer and DV managed hosting plans. Now, I mentioned a code before. Here's a special discount for New Disruptors listeners. Use the promo code TND, that's the New Disruptors, TND, for 25% off your first month of web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net, enter your promo code on signup. That's TND, like the New Disruptors. And now back to the podcast. Well, so this is okay. So I won't, I won't, like I said, I won't push too much on that. But that's a fascinating thing. So you found equipment. You obviously have had to have redundancy. So you need to invest into some number of devices from this third party that you have to have and modify. So how much? Sure. Uh, what what part of your business is the care and feeding of these machines versus the other parts? And by the care and feeding of these of these machines, you just mean um, overall, like the process? Yeah, I guess like, you know, it's because it's, um, you know, clearly the create, I mean, the creative part is it's, they're coming out of this machine. Like this is the mm-hmm. thing that makes the, that, there's other stages that we can talk about in a minute, but this is the thing that makes the actual, you know, oh, main right, product. Right. like yeah. how much do you, how much in terms of like staff and time and mm-hmm. effort, do you have to devote a lot of time to this now that you've perfected a process you want to use? Or is it, are you perfected to a stage where this is just routine and sometimes mm-hmm. things break down and you fix them, but it's not like a baby, you're not babying the thing. Sure. So first thing I, I would definitely want to clarify is by no means this is perfected. This is still, uh, in our opinion, a, a very um, in-the-works process. And that being said, it's honestly not the most time-intensive part of the operation. Oh, okay. it, it's, it's really the other things. It's you know, the, the ecosystem around it. So preparing the inventory and the machinery that's used to prepare the inventory, the glass, the foam core, the, the packaging that meets the prints once they're ready to um, you know, actually assemble them, quality control them, um, and ship them and get them out the door. Um, that entire you know, moving process has, is really what takes up the majority of production and the engineering's time. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about a little of that because that was something that, uh, that I was told about by your, by your colleague there before about um, the next stage. So you're printing on glass. So that's kind of a, all right, that's a big step, right? That's, that's a hurdle. But there's other things you're doing that are not, they're not unique in the field or in the industry, but it's the combination that I'm fascinated with. So you also um, have to cut the glass and you also mm-hmm. cut and engrave the backing as part of the assembly process. What are you right. using to cut the glass? And at what stage in production do you cut it? So we actually um, take care of all the prepping of the raw inventory um, prior to printing on it. So we basically take care of all the individualizations of the pieces of inventory before they actually hit the the printing bed. And like like Kay, our our colleague was um, mentioning, you know, honestly, Glenn, that's the most fun um, seeing it all come together. I really um, make the analogy of looking at a production process is like being in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory just for, <laughs> for manufacturing um, at, at, a, at a lean scale. It's just so much fun to see a CNC router cutting the glass, a, a laser machine lasering out our brand. Um, then you, know, you have the glass printer printing on the actual pieces of glass. It's fascinating to see it all come together. Well, I want to talk about sizes here for a second too, because and in the CNC router part, like that's, again, this is something mm-hmm. that it's not modern. CNC routers go back no, decades, no. but the fact that it's affordable, precise enough, you can have one in your office and Correct. it's just part of what you do. Like, it's like, oh, okay, we need to get a CNC router that'll do this right. and program it and test it. And then we're done. Uh, so the, so you offer sizes. I'm, I, you know, like, I don't want this to sound like a sales pitch because I'm feeling like, uh, but it's true. It's this is the cool part about it is that because you're controlling so many of the variables and the cost, like people could buy something for fifteen dollars, I mean the retail price, fifteen dollars. They can get a right. almost five inch, like four point eight inch by six point four inch mm-hmm. print, which is perfectly reasonable size. But your your standard sizes go up to almost twenty two inches by twenty nine inches. And right. then here's the cool part. This is the part I love. So you're not outsourcing. Like in a different world or a previous world, maybe you would have gotten the glass printing going, but you'd have to have someone else cut the glass, right? You wouldn't exactly. – the CNC, the device wouldn't have the right precision or you couldn't afford it. It would have been a $100,000 investment. You have to be you know, two, three years in before you bought one. You might have to hire specialized people to run it. Like that's a while ago, right? Mm-hmm. But because you're cutting glass in-house, you don't have to go with prefab sizes. And what are the, what are the extremes of dimensions? I know you can order – people can order custom – sizes to sort right. of pretty bizarre dimensions. Exactly. I mean, we've done panoramic images. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done sizes. Our, our largest, quote-unquote, standard 
size is actually a 32 by 40. Oh um, so you have that. And then you ha- we've literally popped out pieces of glass that are hanging above our door frame and printed on fracture. And that's like oh, something that's like 60 great. by 70 or something like that. But I think you really touched on probably the coolest part of the, the era and the age that we live in as far as the lean manufacturing, which is you're right. Because we are able to control each part of this process and the pricing of this machinery has gone down, we're able to do things at a scale that was previously unprecedented and really customize and personalize a lot of the photo products, which really is the name of the game. Um, you know, We know we're not going to compete with Shutterfly and Snapfish and um, you know the other mass photo printers of the world because they've got the scale, they've got the technology to be able to do that at such a at such a price advantage. But where we want to differentiate ourselves is by taking all this amazing technology and saying, well, let's do more with your images. We know you're not going to print out all of them, but for the small percentage of ones you do print, let's do some you know, awesome stuff with it. And that's really where we come out. This goes back into the supply chain too, because you can buy exactly. glass at whatever, uh, you know, in the printing industry, it's called mother sheets. I think you get, or, or you get webs, you get these giant rolls of paper uh, in the glass industry. So I'm, you know, again, this is the wonky stuff. So let's talk about the, sure. where, do you have to, do you source from multiple places? Do you have a bespoke glass that you order in enough quantity that you go to a glass supplier and they make a kind of glass for you? Sure, you know, and this is actually something we had to learn a lot about because we were coming to this complete rookies in understanding printing and um, and sourcing and supply chain management. The truth is that you know the float class that you know that we use, there's really only one or you know, I, I believe two to four main manufacturers in the world. Mm. They're all in China, um, and now it's really the distributors that we have to work with. And so we do have a couple of go-to distributors in in the states that we're proud of, that, that we're, we're proud to know that they're in the states that we do work with individuals that are stateside. And it, it's been interesting though because as we grow, we've kind of been tapping people out of their glass supply and yeah. uh, having to source from multiple people at once. So that's something we've um, kind of been getting a hang of as we've gotten bigger and bigger. Well, I don't want to out you either, but there's always that issue. It's like you know, if, I think every company I've talked to on this podcast where they scale. Uh, to a certain point, they have to they exceed their distributors' abilities, because sure. and, and the distributor is also like there's a point at which it's not they can't handle you as a client because your needs are too big and frequent for them. So at some point, you have to go to China, I assume, and start developing direct relationships there to order the quantity you need. Yeah, and you know it, it's just a reality, um, yeah. and I, it's something that you know, we're going to have to face undoubtedly. But that's fast. And then that adds – and then you have that, you know, the just-in-time thing. A distributor has it on stock. They know to order for you. They're handling all that back end. And suddenly we – you know, it's it's uh, October and we need 50,000 sheets or whatever your, your quantity is. And right. we need it here on December, you know, 1st and the ship gets delayed or a cargo, you know, falls off in a rough sea or the manufacturers is a work stoppage and uh, train derails in China. And, and then you're directly responsible at that point. Yeah, you know, and again, this is something we really had to learn. That no matter how much we believe we're in control of this product, there are still a couple of variables that are out of our control. Um, and you touched upon a a concept, the just in time concept, which mm. is really critical. And the the biggest juggling act we've had to do is when we're trying to calculate or predict holiday loads of you know orders coming in and having to manage the inventory and prepare and stock the inventory you know the past couple of years we've never gotten that equation just right and, mm-hmm. and I say that in a good way because we've always underestimated how much we've needed and you know what we've needed to prepare ourselves with and that's something we're learning along as well I want to link uh, in the show notes to um, Cards Against Humanity. Uh, Max Temkin just posted something a few weeks ago about their Christmas demand cycle. Mm. And um, it's interesting because they're, uh, they grew at this crazy rate. And uh, I'll link to Max's uh, interview I did with Max some months ago. Sure. Uh, but they started, you know, they got did a Kickstarter and they had some pallets that were showed up, I think, in his mother's driveway or some parents' oh, driveway. Sure. And then they went from, you know, pallets to like trucks to boxcars. Now they're getting like shipping containers. Like the scale, it's like a joke. It's like a children's That's awesome. book. That's awesome. That's a great story. And, and, and it's, wonderful, right, it's wonderful because they keep becoming bigger and bigger. So they, this year, they used all these techniques that they had learned about and like, you know, analyses and progression and, and crowd wisdom. And they did all this stuff to say, okay, like, what do we need to order? They backed it out months ahead of time. They, because when cards against humanity, uh, when it uh, has a scarcity, people jack up the price. So it's, I forget what it is normally, $40 or $30 for the main set, uh, and it can sell for $200 from resellers who have wow. like a few. I know, it's, it's wild because it's the most in-demand card game in America and in, in the UK now too, I think. So the funny part is, you know, they did all this work and they're like, okay, you know, we, we feel very proud of ourselves and we did whatever and they still ran out. And they're like, oh, like they're 
differential between regular sales and Christmas, I think, was sevenfold this year, but it had only been fourfold. So even when you do all this planning, you can still hit that point. So I'll link to that post because it's a great read about this, this issue. And we should all be, as you are, so fortunate to have to deal with issues of scale where you're outstripped. But then I assume you also have that problem that your customers are disappointed. You don't want to hit a point where you hear from a customer, oh, the, you know, this is a gift. We can't mm-hmm. deliver it to you. We're out of glass. Like that must be something you deal with. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it is a it's one of the worst feelings um, you know we can have when we when we know we're leaving things on the table, um, we're you know we're leaving potential customers and potential fractures and you know potential future brand evangelists on the table. But like like I mentioned before, it's a reality we have to deal with, and you know it's one thing that hopefully we'll, we'll get better at predicting you know what we're able to provide and how much we're able we're able to provide. It's very very interesting. I just I love scale is just something I think it goes back to childhood where you just you know you're most things in life scale either not at all or very like very slow pace. But when you Correct. have these things where they go up and you're like, okay, how do we cope with this? When we are on this riding this exponential curve up, we have to have the money ahead, the planning mm-hmm. ahead. I mean, it's not even, yeah. even if you had all the money in the world, it doesn't help you, right? Because I mean, if you could air freight glass and maybe, but, but, but really in a realistic sense, it's not just money that helps you get to where you need to be. Right. It all goes to this bottleneck of um, you know, efficiency and productivity. And like you mentioned, you can have unlimited monetary resources, but unless you're able to really employ it properly, you're, you're still out of luck. Well, at some point, you'll have your own fractured glass company in China or America, and we'll, <laughs> we'll see. But so there's, and there's one more piece I've been kind of walking us through this, but the, uh, the other piece is, uh, again, not new technology, but newer than CNC and maybe not as new as 3D printing, but you employ 3D laser cutting and engraving as, as um, what seems to be a really kind of fun and critical part of reducing the labor necessary to finish these things off. Where, where, do, where do laser engravers and laser cutters come into the picture? So we use um, lasering technology to cut out the foam core from the sheets that we get it from, our, from the raw material sheets that come into our production house, and then, again, to cut them into their individual fracture sizes pre before the assembly process actually takes place. So, again, this is all part of making our kits that we use um, to assemble the fractures once they're hot off the press, printing mm-hmm. ones. And so, again, this is a really key part of it because, like you said, we're able to pre-prepare a lot of this inventory beforehand instead of having to kind of um, do it one by one, which is actually what we had to do in the very beginning. To give you a comparison, we actually used a wall cutter, like a media cutter like you'd see in Home Depot. Uh, We actually literally used to use those to cut out all these sheets of foam core and foam board. Instead, now we're able to use a laser that has the profiles for each size of fracture products set up already. So we have one person who can run those machines simultaneously while the printing is going on. Oh, I see. So all your prefab sizes, you've got pieces of glass based on demand that you cut to size that are exactly. milled by the CNC. You've got pieces of foam cord that have been pre-cut and set up uh, from the laser cutter, and you've got those just ready to go. Exactly. But then a custom order you can handle because you can run the CNC and the laser cutter in sync and say we need exactly the, this dimension and this dimension, and it's going to be uh, you know four inches wide by forty inches long. I know that probably is not sustainable. Probably four inches by forty, you can't make would crack, right? But that but, would be pretty fun. But no, yeah, that would be a challenge. But you know, it's okay. I want a sixteen by sixteen inch thing. Great. You just it, so you have an additional step. It would seem to me um, as an outside person that adds a little bit of cost, but it's not suddenly dramatically more expensive. But it's a bespoke item, so there's a better markup. You can offer this still at a reasonable price, but you Correct. can get a better markup because someone's ordering something special that does take a little extra effort. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you really just encapsulated that perfectly. We can do it. At, we can still do it at a reasonable cost, but because it is something extra, we get to add just a bit of, uh, you know, um, pricing on top of that. Yeah. Because you wouldn't want if, if 50% of your orders became special orders, that's problematic from a workflow standpoint. It is. It, it genuinely is. So you need to have so the price premium is partly to encourage the notion that it's a special thing and discourage a little bit, I imagine, from it becoming the thing you do. Otherwise, although I also expect that if you get enough demand for a specific size, does that become a new standard size for you? Has that happened yet where you've introduced the size? Yeah, you know, that's actually kind of how we do our own informal market research, right? Mm. We basically let the consumer masses tell us, well, wow, this size is getting really popular. We might want to consider adding that to our standard product line. That's, that, that is a way that we look at it. And you actually mentioned an interesting challenge that we go through, which is walking that fine line between wanting to create this process that's um, perfectly oriented for a standardization of a product versus being able to kind of jump in there every once in a while and make a custom product. And we had to make the call very early in the game. You know, what did we want to be? Did we want to be a 
a really fast growth company that focused on a standard number of sizes and products, or did we want to be more of a custom, very personalized um, shop where you could do kind of one thing at a time? And we chose the former. Now, so here's the other part of this that's interesting as well. So you've you've automated or let's say not automated, but I guess use computer assisted or, or um, analog assistance, right? Because mm-hmm. we have all these different devices and you're, you've made a process that even though you're perfecting it, you've got something that's got a throughput. You know how many you can do now in a given amount of time. You know, you've got a sense of the orders that are coming through. All these things are happening. But, you know, I look at your, um, I look at your website and you've got people also. It's a funny thing. A lot of companies um, <laughs> want to say like they don't try to eliminate all the people, but one of the goals is to keep headcount as low as possible. Right, right. Um, but, you know, then you we need more capital investment. It's the uh, there's a coming wave of uh, robots that I imagine you guys are probably keyed up on. I keep reading more and more about robots that are going to be uh, programmable and affordable at a level that a company of your scale mm-hmm. might wind up using. Where before it would really you'd have to be a fifty million dollar company to start considering it. But you know mm-hmm. at this level, maybe a robot. It becomes the thing you use to assemble the foam core, grabs the glass with a suction cup, and it does this, it puts the glue in. Right, right. So you've got, I, you know, I'm looking at a rough count. So you've maybe, well, you've under 20 people in the company. Correct. Now. Yeah. And that's enough for the throughput you have now. How have you handled growing from you guys coming up with an idea, prototyping, launching this thing? How do you grow from that to where you're at and keeping your hands on everything? You know, that's, um, that's a great question. And the best thing I can say is, that it's been one of the biggest challenges we've had as leaders, as managers, to understand how to add labor at just the right time, how to decide whether or not we want to invest in more labor or more scaling um, machinery-wise. And um, it's something that we're, we're really getting better at right now when we're able to be a little bit more predictive about our growth. Mm-hmm. In the past, when, you know, when you're, when you're um, at an inception scale, um, you're, you're not – you're not thinking about these sorts of operational logistics issues that you know are going to you know are going to pop up, like you know, how do we add labor, or you know, at what level of order capacity do we need to hit before we add you know two people in labor, three people in labor. But now that's the sort of stuff that we're really focused on, and um, it's becoming a little bit smoother, a little bit more process oriented. And I, I want to make something really clear, which is our intention really is never to make this you know a matrix style process where there's absolutely no humans <laughs> and machines rule that that's really not what we want to do i, I really envision this at, as a very cool marriage of um of of workers of skilled workers who love working with their hands who love creating amazing things working alongside awesome technology and i think you've pointed to it time and time again in this conversation where thanks to how technology has kind of been made available to us we're able to do that um at a at a smaller scale than you would have had to Reach than in the past. Well, some of the most boring parts of this process are now automated. Where correct, like the cutting yeah. or even glass cutting. You could have had people in there doing glass cutting, and maybe it would have been and affordable. Yeah, oh, yeah. So in the early days, right, and that before you got your CNC. But Absolutely. you know, when I look at your staff list, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have relatively few people involved in actual production assembly. A lot of this is the technology and uh, marketing and and business side, isn't it? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. It, it's I think right now it's probably split about half and half, mm-hmm. and. And it really, it is um, pretty fascinating considering, you know, the custom nature of the product, how, how few people we do have on you know, full-time on staff actually making the product. Well, that's where you ask about where robotics come in or where I would ask is that um, rather than having it say, well, we don't want any people in here. We, don't want, we want to have a, a future Amazon-style warehouse in which there are no human beings except <laughs> someone to repair the machines. I was at um, Facebook's uh, data center a couple summer, – summer ago, oh, wow. uh, the one they opened in uh, Prineville, their first uh, uh, air-cooled, swamp-cooled one. And it was fascinating partly because they needed so few people. The place was enormous, but they had done – uh, they were doing increasing process improvement to reduce failure rates as much as possible because uh, that meant that they could have fewer and fewer people. So some of the people worked in previous data centers where they needed hundreds of people to deal with the constant failure rate. Mm-hmm. But by tweaking that, they'd gotten it down to a very small number. But their goal wasn't necessarily to reduce labor costs. Part of it was uptime. And part of it was that everything that people did was meaningful. People weren't doing things that were stupid or awful or now, na- you know, they, Absolutely. The, and so I wonder in your situation, um, as you scale, you know, would you stick a robot in not to replace one of your fine workers, but to replace a tedious task that a human being does today that when you scale up would make more sense for a machine to do, but it wouldn't, you'd be able to scale without adding labor. You'd scale by reducing um, tedium and having more skilled workers in place. Unquestionably, I think you've really, <laughs> you've said it best. Um, we 
kind of free up the our labor to be more impactful, be more meaningful, be more creative, um, focus on product R&D and, and creative marketing concepts and things like that. Um, absolutely. I think you hit it on the head. It's really interesting. Well, and also I noticed there's a great little thing. People should go to your uh, your Slash company page and you see that. So you're, one of your web developers I see is in Latvia, which is kind of awesome. I, I want to know the story behind that because you you know you started in Swaziland. You mm. came, you're working in Florida now. Your company's in Florida. You've got Glass coming from China. So why is why do you have a web developer in Latvia? You know, because at that point in time, he was the best person for the position. That's um, awesome. It's it right. It's a beautiful thing about this day and age is that you can have a remote workforce. You can have individuals who make really meaningful contributions to the team, uh, live and work anywhere. Gins actually, he's no longer with the team, but he's still a a, a well remembered and a and, I don't know well favored individual. You know, he did a lot for us, and to think that mm-hmm. you know, we really never saw him uh, except you know once when he came to visit is is fascinating. That's hilarious. Well, you know, I hear that from people. Uh, I was talking to uh, one software developer where he was uh, in the throes of. Uh, their release schedule and he was going nuts because he was working with people I think at a 12 hour offset so he was in the west coast or maybe Hawaii at that point and he could never sleep because he would work all day and then the programmers would wake up and he'd want to work with them and then they'd do their stuff and he'd get up and they'd have it you know so he could work on a 24 hour cycle which doesn't really work for human beings but it did (laughs) mean that he had a team offset so things were going on continuously around the world. Yeah, exactly. And you know, that, that process, that part of um, being involved in Fracture, the, the team building, the recruiting, the kind of the, the, the chess game that we do um, is, is honestly has been the most rewarding part of it. You know, finding individuals to, to be a part of the team, um, seeing them you know, make a contribution, seeing their joy when they, they make a, a contribution to Fracture has been very cool. All right, so here's the uh, as as we wrap up, I have to talk about the future, of course. So you already to me when I heard the details uh, six months ago about all the technology involved, I thought this feels like a vision of the future because you've you're you're modifying and combining different pieces. They're no longer like well, we have a business that's based partly on laser cutting. It's like no laser cutting, CNC, glass printing, inter, you know, worldwide logistics, uh, this whole thing. So you've built as a small company. <laughs> sort of crazy amount of different pieces that have to come together and that most of which didn't exist for you right. in this way before. As you go into the future, you've got this very strong brand. And, you know, and um, I talk on the new disruptors as often we talk to like people as like one or two person companies or very small companies. And you're a bit on the bigger side of anyone I've talked to, but you're so, um, I think, aligned with that discovery of how you're taking new things to find audiences. I know you advertise on podcasts. You advertise, You do a lot of marketing in different ways and testing. Um, you've built a business that feels a lot bigger than it is, but you still have maintained a very tight focus on this subject. Does the future for you say we're need to, we'll be printing couches, we'll be printing <laughs> canvas prints, or do you say, well, no, we have a brand, we have a name, pick, we're just going to keep defining what this is more and more? I think it's definitely the latter. Um, we really want to keep a tight, focus, uh, you know, a laser sharp focus on our brand and the problem we're trying to solve, which is you know, redefining the way the world prints and displays its favorite images. And I think that in of itself present us plenty of challenge to, uh, to tackle and, and take on in the future. But you, you pointed out such a critical part of this equation, which is the branding, which is the, the brand equity that we're trying to create. And it's fun seeing people hear the name, see the name and, and connect the dots with who we are and what we do. It's well. It's. Um, I mean, I see the you see your name more and more as well because people have started associated with it. And you've come up with something that's when you have something unique and people like it, especially when it's graphical like this and physical. Right. Well, the physical part is hard, right? You can put as many pictures of this on your site as you want, right? Or, or put as many banner ads up as you want, but you need people to get it in their hands. And mm-hmm. I assume after the, the you know Hanukkah and Christmas, uh, New Year's holiday season, that, um, that we're recording this not too long after the New Year, that um, this must have been a very interesting period. How did Christmas, uh, the Christmas rush go? The Christmas rush went um, amazing, and it's it's again one of those interesting challenges because we're so excited once we get orders and we turn and look <laughs> over to the other side of the company, and everyone's looking at us like, "How many orders did you get in?" Oh my gosh! And it's it's a it's a fun equation um, to to try and work on. You know, this is actually the first year, the first holiday season that we had a planned and prepped marketing strategy going into it. Mm. And, and it paid off uh, incredibly well. The, it, the reason why it was the first season is because we were focused so much on the manufacturing and the scaling and the actual process that we didn't, we kind of subconsciously neglected the, the marketing and the actual brand um, equity and part of it. But you know, we realized that 
you can have a great process, but if you don't have the uh, necessary demand going into it, and it's all kind of all for naught. And um, it was a fa- it was a great you know introductory Christmas season in that aspect. Well, let me ask you a pricing question too before yeah, sure. before we finish, because I think um, you know I've been talking a lot. People can go to your website and see what the what the prices are, but they seem very reasonable to me. I mean, I've priced mm-hmm. out. You know, I've I've looked at getting some large things framed. You go to a frame a custom frame shop. You can go to IKEA and you buy a, a size that's whatever it's supposed to be. Then you get the big print done and whatever. And so your pricing is actually um, really very well in line or cheaper than mm-hmm. going a conventional route of getting a print or getting a framed. Th- I mean, I could spend two hundred dollars easily for the largest size that you offer that's much less than that you know it's right uh, what's your you the it's 125 dollars for the 22 by 29 yeah. roughly size right. and I, I could easily spend 200 250 dollars for that in oh, a no. frame shop uh, and then still have to go get uh, you know a large print that i might pay 20 to 40 dollars for so uh, it seems like you're not i don't want to say you're underpricing it but it seems like you're being very aggressive with pricing where does that fit in with your strategy of controlling the process of having prices that are um, maybe below people's expectations of what it should cost. Exactly. I think that's the very first thing we're trying to break or disrupt when a person thinks about printing and framing. I mean, I talk to my friends and I talk to our, our demographics about this all the time. They think about printing and framing and then the, the first thing that they say is, oh, well, that's expensive. I can't do it. Um, and that's the the first kind of take that we're trying to break. And we're trying to be so aggressive because once people get over that pricing impediment, that pricing barrier, they are blown away by the quality, by the experience, so on and so forth. But they just need to get over that first hurdle price. And I think that's going to go, you know, the our aggressive pricing strategy goes a long way to um, ingratiate us towards new customers and, and potential customers. Well, I think uh, you've hit a lot of marks all at the same time. Technological, marketing, production, it's very interesting. So we'll all keep our eyes on you, and uh, people will find you at Fracture.me, and they can take a look at, at the, both uh, some descriptions of the technology and this pricing thing. And I think people who are sometimes daunted maybe about a change they want to make in life or something they want to produce, you know, part of the point of this podcast is to give people some inspiration about ideas they want to try out. And, um, you know, it's not like you guys bought a commercial product and said, oh, yeah, here's a glass printer and uh, and we threw that together and now we're shipping prints. You had to develop every part of this. Right. But you had the assistance that technology was growing along with you, that the stuff you wanted to do was coming uh, into reality at the same time as you wanted it to exist. Certainly. We're very fortunate in that aspect. Timing is everything. No kidding. Abi, thank you for being on the podcast and thanks for sharing all this. Thanks so much, Glenn. I, I had a blast. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash newdisruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.